Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we're going to be all over the book of Exodus. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you want to turn, maybe tap your way, if it's a digital copy of the scriptures, to Exodus. Like I say, we are going to be flipping around quite a bit. We're going to be moving through that book and kind of surveying uh, a lot of different chapters. But it may still be helpful for you to be able to see it in your own copy of the scriptures. We want to make sure you know that's where our teaching is coming from. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one in a readable English translation. So let us have that honor. So I do want to say another happy Father's Day. I mean, it's, it's kind of a fun, I don't know. Is it a holiday? Maybe not. It's at least a reminder, you know, for people in your life to say, hey, thanks. I don't know that kids do it. I think that kids do it if they come to a church on Sunday where their kids' leaders make them make like a craft or a card or something. And that's helpful. Give them that little reminder. It's good to be thankful for somebody who does, you know, at least on the surface of things, uh, sacrifice quite a bit for their little families. And as you think about what it is to be a dad, uh, it's, it's tempting to go a couple of different directions that I don't know that are, are super helpful. One direction is to just talk about dads and leave everybody else kind um, of out of the whole Sunday morning experience. That's not a great way to go. Another thing that you can do is just sort of assume that people are excited about their dads. And I don't know, I mean, if you're somebody who's either naive enough or lucky enough to have had a really great dad, then maybe you don't think about other people's experiences. But of course, a lot of people haven't had maybe the greatest either relationships with or, or uh, you know, just experiences with their dads. So what I want to do today is I want to take sort of the concepts that we have with a Father's Day and just continue with what we've been talking about with this idea of a good guide. I mean, I think when you think about a dad, the idea of being a guide makes sense. I mean, we have the term father figure for a reason, somebody that leads you in that way, sets an example for you, that, that sets a direction for your life. The people that we see in Scripture and have been looking at uh, together are people that we are hoping kind of can do those same things, that can lead us, can set a direction for us in our lives. And, and man, I mean, when you think about your kind of understanding of what it is to be influential in somebody's life or be influenced in your own life. We're talking about fathers. You think about these relationships that are deeply forming for you. I mean, the, the home that you grew up in, they have a huge head start on forming who you are. They give you your accent. They give you sort of your proclivities. They help sort of form your habits, your likes, your dislikes, your foods, the things that make you who you are before you kind of even get the chance to start trying to steer yourself, just all get implanted, not to mention genetically when you come from a family. That's how relationships work. And, and as you get older... I think there's a point while you still keep running that math on like, what am I from and do I like those relationships? Do I want to be like my dad or do I not want to be like my dad? And, and you have this sort of control that comes from the person who has that level of influence over you, either positively or negatively. It's possible for somebody that you don't want to be like to still have a lot of control over you because, man, you, you want to not be like that person. There's a lot of things that you just write off. There are a lot of emotions maybe that you're really careful with because you're trying to not be like a specific person. I mean, if you go to therapy, this is what they're going to always be talking to you about, right? Some of these 
ideas of who are you based on these core relationships you've had. But I will say, as you do get older and continue trying to evaluate those things, you also start to notice that you are likewise having an effect on other people's lives. You know, if you are a dad, then of course, that's, you know, one-to-one. But even if you're not, you, you have close relationships, and you, in those close relationships, are formative to these other people that you love and love you. Suddenly, it's not so easy to be critical of other people because you start realizing that you now have to take an action, A or B. You now have to walk into the home and have a certain kind of energy and a certain kind of attitude at the end of the day. You also are going to have to make a call in a crisis scenario. Over time, with the people that you influence, you're going to start to notice things. I mean, again, if it is being a dad, then, then you have some specific stuff you notice. I mean, it's really heartbreaking when you see your kids start to exhibit some of the, the sinful patterns, or if you're not a Christian, just the destructive patterns that you see in your own life. You know, we've, got, we've only got three, but it's still enough for us to be able to see some kids that are like, like me or like Rachel, sort of in their personality, and then the one that's sort of the complement or the opposite. The one that's like me, it's heartbreaking. You see her start to have some of the same temptations that I deal with. The one that's not like me, you see being formed still by our relationship. No, oh, scary stuff. You have a lot of influence, and that influence is not always positive. It's sort of spooky to go from accusing, you know, people in your life that you consider to maybe not have done the greatest job to being the person who's going to be accused. I don't know if you ever think about that. Like, you have a moment and you go, like, will my kid bring this up with a therapist one day? Like, will, <laughs> will this make it into a journal and be something that they have to work through? I, I, I think about it. So I, I want to get into what the scripture says, because the church also has a formative effect on people. I mean, we're not just who we are because of our parents. We're who we are because of our community. And a church is not just a community. A church is a community that stands on the authority of God's word. And so when we speak into each other's lives, we're not just sharing opinions. We're speaking with God's authority to God's other people. So I, I want to ask that question then. What, what are some of the ways that we want to be forming fathers, that we want to be forming people who lead other people? And we're going to talk about Moses today. We talked about him last week. We're going to finish with Moses today. But Moses exemplifies several of these really masculine, fatherly kind of qualities that we want to see from dads, that we want to be forming as a church in the dads that we have and in the leaders that we have. And this guy Moses, as we talked about last week, was a very specific character in a very specific time in Israel's history. The people of Israel had become this sort of large slave class within Egypt. And God had this very specific guy, Moses, that he was going to use to take that slave class out of Egypt and fulfill promises he had made to his people about putting them in this wonderful promised land. They would become a great nation in their own land. But to do that, they have to get out of Egypt. And God chooses to use this guy Moses to go about it. He establishes his relationship with Moses, as we talked about last week, by this self-disclosure, by describing who he is. There's a burning bush. He describes his name as Yahweh. And there's all this meaning that goes into it. But then... As you move from that point of the story forward, we start seeing what Moses actually goes about doing. He's kind of been on the sidelines for the first 80 years of his life, 
40 years, he's kind of tucked away in the uh, palace of Egypt. He makes this one kind of wild, crazy attempt to deliver some of his people and to, uh, to identify with them. And it doesn't go great. And so he ends up becoming a shepherd for another 40 years. He's 80 by the time that his story really gets going. So, you know, if you feel like you're in your third act, maybe it's going to be a really long third act. Maybe you're going to be uh, like Moses. But as, as he steps into this role, he has some of these qualities. And I want to walk through them with you so that we can see how Moses did what he did and try to see how we should either be like him or, or maybe not. Like a father, Moses does lead the people of Israel. Specifically, and, and to start out, he leads the people out of Egypt. So we can look at how he does that. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 10, it says, When the child grew older, she brought uh, Moses to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Pharaoh's daughter names Moses Moses because he's going to be one who will draw people out. And that was his name, and that's what he attempted to do. Like I said, when he tried to, you know, protect this one Israelite from an Egyptian, but later in his life, he's allowed to be the one who will draw the people of Israel out of Egypt into this promised land. Right after he speaks to the Lord, after he has this burning bush moment, it says in Exodus chapter 5, afterward, Moses and Aaron, his brother, go in and speak to Pharaoh. I don't know how all the math works on that. If he was able to do that because he was Moses and he had a relationship with previous pharaohs, if there was just a sort of an open sort of, I don't know, court where people could just walk into Pharaoh's presence. But he does. Him and his brother, they go and they speak to Pharaoh and they say, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now you think, okay, wow, you know, he's supposed to be the leader. He walks in to speak to the person who is this tyrant that's holding all of God's people under his thumb. And he makes the proclamation. He did it. He led. Now we know from the story that that alone was terrifying to Moses. He said, I'm not a speaker, Lord. Please don't use me. He argues with the burning bush to say, ah, don't use me. Maybe you could use my brother, Aaron. He's, he's a talker, or at least 40 years ago when I saw him last, he was a great talker. If he's still alive, maybe you could use uh, Aaron. But God sends Moses and Aaron to go and speak to Pharaoh. They go, they make this bold proclamation, and Pharaoh doesn't do it. So Moses has to be a, a brave leader. He can't just be somebody who makes the proclamation. He has to stick by it. And he has to stick by it when things get really hard for the people he's trying to serve. Pharaoh then decides that he's going to make the people of Israel add a step to their big job. Their big job was making bricks for the uh, construction projects of Egypt. And they had to use straw to make those bricks kind of hold together. Well, he said, instead of providing that straw, you're going to have to go get it yourself. And the people of Israel are crying out in the pain of the fact that they don't just have to be slaves. They now have to be slaves who also work at night going and, and trying to just find little scattered pieces of straw so they can keep up with the quotas that they have been given. Things get really hard for the people after Moses starts to lead. And if you've been a leader, you understand it's not just about that first moment. I mean, you get the promotion, you get the call, you get whatever that moment is where you become the leader you've been training to become. That's great. But then you actually have to do the job. And actually doing the job day in and day out 
It, it has punches to it. You get hit. Well, what do you do after that? Well, this Moses guy continues to lead. It says in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you done this evil to the people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Well, okay. We, we talk about Moses being a leader, but here uh, he seems to be pretty reliant on the Lord. Uh, he, he, he wants to be the guy that's bringing these people out of Egypt, and he is the guy that is being used to bring the people out of Egypt, but his leadership is really pretty dependent on the Lord. See, God gives Moses these miraculous signs, turning his staff into a snake, putting his hand in his robe and bring it out, and it's leprous, putting it back in and bring it out, and it's not leprous anymore. He, he's got these things that God gives him miraculously that would give you a leg up if you were trying to establish yourself as a leader. There's also signs for Pharaoh. The Lord gives him backup in this guy, Aaron. And then as you read through the book of Exodus, the kind of spectacular visual piece of the book of Exodus, the thing that gets made into the movies, whether it's Charlton Heston or Prince of Egypt or kind of whatever versions of this movie you might have seen, are these plagues. God delivers his people, and he uses Moses, but God delivers his people out of Egypt by sending these giant miraculous plagues on the people of Egypt, but not the people of Israel. And each one hardening Pharaoh's heart and, and making it um, more difficult, but yet more necessary for the people of Israel to be pulled out. Once eventually they are pulled out, the Lord splits the Red Sea to allow them to move through it. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think Moses is a leader, but he's really a leader where God is a leader. It says in Exodus 13, the Lord goes before the people by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people. So I don't know. Is Moses really the leader of the people? You know, we say he is, and he's named that way. And it's his staff that's striking the water, and, you know, he's involved. But it would be difficult to call yourself the leader when it's God that sends the plagues. It's God that splits the sea. It's God that stands behind you in a giant column of fire or smoke, visibly leading the people where they should go. Yeah, he's a leader, but he's a pretty dependent leader. Okay, so he leads the people, but he also is a provider for the people. The whole congregation of Israel is brought from this, you know, slave state, but ordered state of Egypt out into the wilderness. I don't know what you know about wilderness, but there's not like stores there. You can't just go get food in the wilderness. You got to like scrub for it. You got to try and figure it out. You got to bear grills your way through it. And if you have hundreds of thousands of people, that's not easy. So the people grumble. It says in Exodus 16, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we had sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That's pretty intense. He's the leader. He's the one that they come and talk to. And they say, well, how are you going to feed us? Yeah, if you're a leader, that's your job. Your job isn't just leadership. Your job is also provision. Uh, David has quoted before the old proverb, you got to pay the cost to be the boss. 
It doesn't really rhyme. You have to drop that T at the end of it, so it's called a slant rhyme. Maybe it's uh, Shakespearean or whatever. But you got to pay the cost to be the boss. you got to do the work that it takes to make sure the people that you lead are cared for. Now, Moses is between a rock and a hard place here. How do you provide food for so many people? Well, again, yeah. He doesn't. <laughs> God does. God miraculously sends bread from heaven daily. And it's very miraculous. I don't know if you've ever had a bread storm, but they would have a daily bread storm where they would wake up and the land would be covered with this fine, honey tasting wafer kind of substance that they would take. They would gather enough for their day. And you think, well, wouldn't it be smart to gather enough for a couple of days and then you only do your gathering every now and again? Well, no. God was making a point by it. He wanted his people to be reliant upon him. And so he would give them daily manna. And he would make sure they wouldn't store for the future because if you tried to st store it for an extra day, you'd wake up the next morning and what you had stored for the next day would all be eaten up by worms. It would get gross really quick. Well, you think, oh, that's probably a refrigeration issue. Well, no, it was something God miraculously did, and he proved it because every seventh day he wanted them to rest on the Sabbath so he would have them gather for the extra day, and it wouldn't rot. You go, wow, that's pretty good provision. Great job, Moses. Eh, not really, right? What did Moses do? He was kind of just the guy they yelled at and then the guy who told them that God was going to rain down miraculous bread for them. Same thing with water. We have him making bitter water sweet miraculously as God tells him how to do it. We have him striking a rock and turning rocks, dry, dead rocks, into flowing, living water for the people to not only drink, but also for their cattle and animals. Yeah, I mean, he, he leads the people and he feeds the people, but I, I think we have to say that God does it more than we have to say that Moses does it. But those are good leadership qualities, leadership, provision. There's also teaching. Leaders lead in a specific direction because they have principles. You know, it's not like, um, I don't know if you ever saw Forrest Gump, but if you ever saw Forrest Gump with Lieutenant Dan in, uh, in Vietnam, they're, they're trying to get along, and it seems like Lieutenant Dan is just wild. He does whatever he wants, and he tells the guy sometimes to jump down, sometimes not. And Forrest never tries to understand you know, what's happening in his life, so it doesn't bother him. But you have to imagine that the other soldiers are constantly wondering at the kind of mercurial nature of uh, Lieutenant Dan. That's a very old movie. It's totally fine if you don't know that reference. But if you are going to lead, you have to have a set of principles to lead by. There's got to be a way that you kind of understand how to give judgments on should we A or should we B. And Moses is actually pretty famous for this next piece. He didn't just lead them and feed them. He, he corrected and taught them. See, Moses taught the law. In the New Testament, whenever Moses is referred to, he's usually referred to as kind of a placeholder or a way of talking about the law that God gave through Moses. They talk about somebody sitting in the seat of Moses. That means their job was to expound the law, to be the law teacher to the people of Israel. When the uh, Pharisees come to try and confront Jesus about his teaching or about divorce, they use Moses' teaching, though thousands of years earlier, because Moses was still the authority. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus starts with what the people already know, you have heard it said, and then says what he's going to say, but I say to you, what he says you have heard is Moses' law. 
And then, I don't know if you've heard of the Ten Commandments, but they are a cornerstone of kind of the whole Bible's understanding of what is right and what is wrong. Old times, they used to have the Ten Commandments up in like, you know, law offices and, and in front of courthouses. The Ten Commandments are really helpful. And Moses is the guy who brings down the Ten Commandments. And you say, wow, Moses must be this really great lawgiver. Well, <laughs> I mean, if we're honest, you know, it was God that wrote the law. Not just by saying, here's the law, but by literally taking his finger and writing the law on tablets of stone that Moses would then bring down to the people of Israel. Yeah, it's a really amazing law. And Moses did a great job of helping the people understand what God had taught him. But we can't really say that Moses was the law giver. I mean, he's really more the law carrier, right? He's like the law mailman. He, he brought the law to the people of Israel. Thank you very much. You know, that's helpful. They didn't want to go up Sinai with all the thunder and, and fire touching that mountain. They didn't want to go be in God's presence. So here, thank you. But, you know, he didn't really write it. It was brilliant. The law that was given by God was incredible. If you just take the first and the last, the first was the idea of no idols. That meant that God was focusing his people on what they love most. Now, it does not take long. Do some reading. Just look at your own heart. What we talked about at the beginning of the service. You are most formed by what you most love. That's why your parents have such a leg up on you. You start off laughing on their knee. I mean, what, what else can you love? As you get older, you, you choose different things that you're going to love, that you're going to say, this is what I'm about. And you express your wisdom to the world by how wisely you choose what to love. Do you love something dirty? Okay. Well, that ends up reflecting on your life. Do you love something really beautiful? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that, that forms you. I mean, there's, there's so much practical wisdom in God saying, you shall have no other gods before me. What he's saying is, I'm at the pinnacle of what is most good and what is most lovely. Therefore, make sure your heart is focused most wholly, most fully on loving me. And in so doing, you're going to see not only the change that takes place in you, but the change that takes place in your ability to love and see everything else. Beautiful command, insightful command, the last one. The one that we don't talk about too much. But the last one is not to envy. Don't covet, which is Old Testament, for envy. I don't know how often you do that, but if you focus on envy in your life and start seeing how often it happens, it's really surprising. If you then reflect on how uh, envy impacts your ability to be satisfied with your life, you start realizing that if there's just one thing that you were going to change that would really increase your quality of life, take you from spiteful to satisfied, it would probably be that category of going from envious to thankful. My kids and I saw a movie yesterday. It was the new Cross the Spider-Verse Spider-Man movie. It's really fun. We did not know that it was a part one. So we got an hour, two and a half hours through this movie like, I don't know, when is it going to end? You know, like there's still a lot of hanging chads here. And then it just goes, to be continued. My youngest was like, why would they put it out if they weren't done? And I'm like, I agree, I agree. I'm sorry, I didn't know. None of us were prepared. We were all dissatisfied until we stopped and said, okay. But is what we saw pretty good? I'm like, well, yeah, that was pretty good. 
Was it a good afternoon? Well, yeah, yeah, it was a pretty good afternoon. Can we maybe be thankful for what we saw? You know what? We can. We can be thankful for it. Okay, okay. We can be envious of people who saw, you know, the Mario Brothers movie or whatever, and it was just one contained movie. Wow, great for them. (laughs) Or we can be thankful. Silly example. But man, the law that God gave was insightful. And you think, boy, Moses is impressive for coming up with it. But I got to say, I don't think he did much there. He became the one who was sort of associated with the law, but his job was just to carry it down and implement what God gave as a set of principles. But I'll say, so we've got the lead, we've got the feed, we've got the principle thing, but I'll say one place where we really can look at Moses and say, wow, is that Moses did stick with the people of Israel. And talk about being a a leader or a pastor of some kind, you know, you lead a group of people, you're going to lead a group of grumblers because people are grumblers. And there's a lot of times where you can sympathize with Moses wanting to get the heck out of that leadership responsibility because these people are so wearing. They don't come up and say, hey, Moses, we've kind of run low on food. What do you think, bud? You know, can you talk to the Lord about that? They come up and they go, oh, that you brought us out of this place of, you know, food and and bread that we had in our slavery and out into this place to die. They immediately just start cursing. They immediately just start grumbling. It's kind of what people do. It makes them unlovely and it makes them hard to stick with. But if they go even further and betray, and I don't know if you've ever had to lead with somebody who's who's not just um, hard to lead, but like wrong, done something like terrible, and you got to either stand with them or stand against them. Man, it's, it's a hard place to be in. And Moses, man, he, he actually does stick with the people of Israel through a huge disobedience. After not only receiving the Ten Commandments, but receiving all this exposition on the Ten Commandments, we get to Exodus 32, where the people of Israel rebel against God by actually making a different God to worship. And if you were keeping count, I was telling you the Ten Commandments, the first was that you shall have no other gods before me. That's the one that they chose to break. You know, I don't know that they're in order of importance, but I kind of think they are. And it was the first one. They made an image. They started to worship this bull that they made out of gold that they had Aaron make out of gold. They abandoned the Lord quickly. And before we get too judgmental on them, I want to ask you if you've maybe felt similar experiences. Maybe you've had committed moments where you said, man, I'm never going back to that sin. Man, you know what? As a family, we're really going to do this. That was really helpful. I think the Lord's right. I think we've been wrong. We're going this direction now. And I got to ask you, how long did it last? Is it possible that you walked away? Is it possible that you just forgot? I don't know. I'm guilty of that. Maybe we're not so distant from the people of Israel. But, but what Moses does is he actually chooses to stand with the people. This is what it says in, in verse 10. God says that he's going to destroy them. He says, now, therefore, let me alone, Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against the people of Israel, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. 
Not only did the people do something despicable, the people did something despicable, and God said, the way things are going to go from here forward is that I'm going to use you, Moses, to make a great nation, to make a great name. You're going to be the new Jacob. Your kids are going to be the new tribes. You'll be the important person. You'll be the one that I'll use. And instead, Moses pleads with God not to kill the people. And the Lord relents. It says in verse 14, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of by bringing on his people. But then Moses goes further. If you go all the way down to verse 31 in Exodus 32, Moses returns to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. He understands this isn't something he's blind about. They have sinned a great sin, and they made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will not forgive their sin... Uh, if you will, then forgive their sin. But if you will not forgive their sin, please blot me out of your book that you have written. He decides that he would rather stand with the people in their, in their separation from God. I, I don't think he's planning to do that because he thinks God's not worth it and the people of Israel are great. He's not choosing Israel over the Lord. In fact, I think in this place too, it's kind of hard to give Moses too much credit because I think what he's doing here is still following the example he's seen from the Lord. If you look at his life and his ministry, he's somebody that God has taught the people about atonement through. And the clearest picture of it, of course, outside of the law, is the Passover. So these plagues that God does to Egypt before he pulls his people out, they culminate in this one awful plague where God says he's going to send this angel of death to kill the firstborn of all that nation, except for Israel, if, if they'll take a lamb without blemish or spot, sacrifice the lamb, and put the blood of the lamb around their door. Now, in all these other plagues, the, the plagues don't touch the people of Israel. But this one was going to, unless. And after nine examples, you get to the tenth plague. And, and in this plague, we have an unless that stands out. Unless an innocent is killed on behalf of the guilty. You say, the people of Israel, they're not guilty. Yeah, they are. Because we all are. They may not have been slaveholders in the same way as the Egyptians. They may have suffered in ways the Egyptians hadn't. But like the Egyptians, they were equally fallen people. And you can see that by what happens as soon as they get out of Egypt. They immediately start not only grumbling, but idolatrizing, idolatering, whatever the verb of that is, committing idolatry. So, so, so they don't deserve better. And so when Moses does what he does and stands up for this people, what is he doing? I still think what he's doing is what God had been leading him to do. What God had been showing him the value of and enticing him toward. You know, I, I got to say, what is it to be a good dad? What is it to be a good leader? Man, I think the example from Moses is to be reliant. To be somebody with their eye on the Lord obeying that first command that your love would be first toward him so that he's going to be transforming you constantly into the image of his son that you might actually have the same sort of love for others that God has for you because that Passover lamb wasn't just about a lamb 
Just like the atonement system under the Moses law was not just about an atonement system or goats being killed and sent out into the wilderness. It was about the Lord who would come to make us something clean. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, though Christ knew no sin. He was an innocent one who was counted among the guilty, who was damned with the damned, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The glory of the gospel is not just that he's willing to burn with us, it's that he's willing to burn for us. Jesus stepping into that place said, don't blot them out of your book, Lord. Redeem them. And you can, you, you can, because I'll accept their pain and death that they can accept my righteousness. That's what we mean when we talk about the cross. What is it to be a, a, a leader, a provider, a principled leader? Man, I, I think it's most obvious. It's to see this leader in Christ, to see this sacrificing, perfect leadership we have from God through Christ. And to pattern your life after it. I mean, I, Jesus molds our hearts after the Lord so that we lead, provide for, teach, and sacrifice for those we have a hand in shaping. And he does it as his love shapes us. You know, I wanted to show you how great Moses was by showing you how great God was through Moses. I want to show you what's possible in your life. Not because you're Moses, you're not. But because you can follow the same God as Moses. You can have your heart shaped by the same love and holiness that God showed to Israel through Moses. Man, today we're about to take the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a gift from God to try and shape our loves. And that's why it's really important to not take the Lord's Supper if you're not somebody who's already committed yourself to the Lord. See, the Lord's Supper is about shaping the love, shaping the commitment of somebody who's already committed to Christ by going through a physical experience that helps to write these things down a little deeper into your heart. So as we take the Lord's Supper, I just ask you, if you're somebody who believes in a Jesus that isn't the Jesus that we preach here at Hope Church, just have enough respect for us not to take the Lord's Supper. If you're somebody who would love to take the Lord's Supper, you feel like you're ready for it, but you haven't gone through that ordinance of baptism that is the one that we do before the Lord's Supper, let us talk with you about that. That doesn't mean that's just 100%, but, but let us walk with you through that, please. And as we go to take the Lord's Supper, we're, we're going to do it as we always do. I'm going to ask you to just spend some time reflecting. The Lord wants us to take the Lord's Supper, but not in an unworthy manner. So I want you to just take some time to, to ask God to highlight some things in your life that maybe you need to repent of. Some stuff that maybe you've been trying to hide from or hide from him. Band's going to come up and they're going to start to play. When you're ready, I'm going to pray, they'll play. And then when you're ready, after you spend a minute kind of preparing, come and get the elements, sit down, and then we'll take them together. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would shape our loves this morning. Shape our heart by seeing what you've done as reflected through Moses. Lord, shape our heart by piggybacking on the love that we already have for people that have shaped us or that we hope to shape. 
Lord, if we care for them, let us do what it takes to know and be shaped by that most perfect love, to follow that most perfect leader and provider and lawgiver and sacrificer. Lord, as we go to take this supper, I pray that you would give us grace to self-select if this isn't for us, but also to prepare well so that we might be shaped in a way that, that honors you and reflects your glory through this, this little group of people here in Salt Lake City. We love you, sir. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.